just by virtue of having someone else vet you, like in this case, the media, that just is a form of social proof, right? Kind of like having a five-star Google review or, you know, in those restaurants, there's like Zagat rated stickers or TripAdvisor, like these little signals to the customer or someone new finding you. They're like, okay, this person didn't just pop out of a rock. They've been proven. They have credibility. And that's really the goal of press. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Kraszowski, and welcome to episode 161 of That Remote Life podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Stephanie Lee, the founder of Clout Monster, where she helps clients like Ramit Sethi get featured in publications like Forbes, Business Insider, New York Times, and many others. During this interview, Stephanie and I talked about why she decided to retire from the digital nomad lifestyle after doing it for over three years, the benefits that come from building a personal brand, and she broke down her slingshot method, which she uses with her clients, which you can use to get featured in top publications like the ones that I mentioned earlier. But before we jump into this interview, make sure you subscribe to my newsletter, Remote Insider, where every Monday I share the most important developments in the areas of remote work online business, tech, and the digital nomad lifestyle. It has been called mandatory reading by other subscribers. And if you enjoy this podcast, I guarantee you'll also love being a Remote Insider subscriber. It's completely free and you can subscribe to that at thatremotelife.com forward slash remote insider, all one word. Also, I would like to thank Safety Wing for sponsoring the show. I will tell you a bit more about the awesome things they're working on later in the episode. As always, if you enjoy this episode, share it on Twitter or Instagram and tag me at Mitkoka, M-I-T-K-O-K-A, or send it to a friend you think will enjoy it. And while you're there, give me a follow as well. I've been really ramping up my Twitter content and I'm getting ready to do a 30-day uh, thread challenge where every single day I'm going to be posting a thread about a lot of the topics that we discuss on this podcast. So if you enjoy listening to the show, uh, definitely head on over to Twitter and follow me there because we're going to be doing uh, a lot more stuff and I'd love to connect with you over there. But all right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this awesome conversation with Stephanie Lee. All right, Steph, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Doing good, Mitko. Like, feeling good it's sunny in los angeles let's let's do this so okay let's start this off because um this was something i was curious about when you said that you live in la before we hit record mm. so you're a retired digital nomad you are the found uh you're the founder of clout monster which is a pr uh agency of sorts uh you help people get on a lot of different publications which is something that i definitely really really want to talk about but you said i'm a retired digital nomad and i live in la and I'm very curious as to why you decided to live in LA when you could, you know, theoretically live anywhere else. Like, why did you decide to settle in LA after being a digital nomad? Oh man, that is, that was a question I asked myself many years ago, but I'm in this probably something that a lot of people can relate to, but to just kind of the short answer of why I settled for LA is, you know, I have family and friends here. So that just makes LA easier as the home base. Are you originally from there? 
Yeah, I grew up in SoCal, a little bit in like a suburb, a little bit outside of LA. So I just say LA to keep it yeah. simple. So now I'm in uh, it's also a, a suburb outside of LA a little bit. And yeah, I, I'm, 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 I'm basically the retired, a retired nomad. It doesn't. What was it about the lifestyle that you said, you know what? Okay. I'm done with that for now. Yeah. Yeah. We can totally get into this. So I started digital nomadism back in 2015 and I totally found it by accident. Like I didn't read blogs or you know, follow Instagram people. Like, like it was total accident. And then I discovered afterwards there was this whole community of this, just these people, digital nomads doing this thing, like working and traveling. But basically my story started in uh, Boise, Idaho, when I was working my last corporate nine to five in the office um, at bodybuilding.com, which is this big fitness e-commerce store um, I, I was on the content team. So a lot of my background is in writing, hence like the publication, the media stuff. It just makes sense because I understand it. Um, and I decided I, I couldn't live in Boise anymore. I really wanted to. <laughs> I really wanted to escape. And so um, I, I bought a one-way ticket to Tokyo, uh, packed all my stuff, moved it back to LA in storage, and then just went to Tokyo and discovered, oh crap, I could just stay here. And it's much cheaper to travel around Asia once you're there. And I was able to negotiate like freelance work and things like that. So that's basically the start of my um, digital nomadism with, and I was around, and I was just bouncing around for three years. Got it. Yeah. I, uh, so I don't know if you noticed this, uh, this poster in the background, Yeah. Here, but my dad's a personal trainer. So I'm well familiar with uh, bodybuilding.com. Um, yeah. So why did you decide to hang it all up? Like, why did you decide to, to stop digital nomading, quote unquote? Yeah. Um, how, what's the longest time you've been on the road? Full time? Yeah. Well, that's a tough question, right? Because technically I've been on the road since 2016. But mm -hmm. I stop and like I set up home bases like we were just my wife and I were just in Mexico for six months. Right. And then we do like a spurt where we're traveling a lot again. And then we find another home base to kind of like put our stuff up for a little bit and then move on. So uh, the reason why I answer it that way is technically since 2016, but I don't really consider it full time traveling. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So like, it's really kind of melded into like a true lifestyle rather than like a temporary thing. Yeah. Um, well, I asked that because one of the things it was like, I basically lived out of, out of a suitcase for over a year and a half before I came back home mm. to just, you know, kind of settle in the home base kind of thing to recharge. Um, and while that was awesome and the, the experiences were like, I don't think I could, it's just one of those things where I would not, I, I don't regret those experiences. It was very, very tiring to be on the move. And I didn't have the foresight to stay that long. Like the longest I stayed was um, a couple months in Japan. Um, and then it was pretty fast traveling even between Airbnbs. And so as you can imagine, like doing work, being a quasi local but also being a foreigner still, like a tourist, like that was just a lot of mental energy. And yeah. pretty soon I was just craving that, um, those roots and 
this and we were just kind of talking about this before we recorded that you were you mentioned that you had some friends weddings and that you wanted to attend them and that's why you guys are back home um i missed a lot of these moments with friends and family because i was just away and i didn't feel like flying back at the time so i feel like there was basically a three-year maybe two to three-year limbo where my relationships were at a standstill or like broken because i wasn't there to you know spend time with them and be there when those big moments and small moments were there and so it was a combination of things that kept me uh, that made me decide to like put up the full-time digital nomad hat like maybe i can do it part-time these days but definitely not not full-time it doesn't appeal to me i i really crave roots at my age now and that um like being around people when moments happen like those important moments or even small ones and building mm -hmm. those relationships are really important to me now and how long ago was that like what year was that year and a half or three where you were moving around a lot yeah that was between 2015 and 2000 mid 2018 mm. so the reason yeah. why i asked that is because i feel like just very recently definitely more so after COVID, but even before COVID happened, you started feeling like some maturity in the space. Like oh, for there, sure. there were, there were some, there was some infrastructure that got developed that made things a little bit more sustainable. Um, and like, so I think now, I mean, I, the fact that you traveled around for a year and a half, three moving around that much is kind of crazy. Like that's, that's exhausting, right? Like, no, mm -hmm. like I, I don't recommend anyone do that. And it's funny that you talk about how you did that for that period and then kind of like hung up the backpack, so to say, because it's something that I was just talking about with another friend about how I kind of view digital nomadism as the gap year that is more popular in like countries like Australia or or the UK, right? It's it's not like you're not on a gap year for the rest of your life, but you're location dependent and maybe like every year or two you go and you do a nomad year, right? And you go and you hit a whole bunch of different spots and you're like, okay, cool. I'm going to find a home base, chill out for like, you know, six, eight, 10, 12, 15 months, whatever it may be. And then do it again if you want to. It's sort of like a gap year that you can use from time to time. Um, and then I think that that's a far more sustainable way to do it because absolutely otherwise, you know, it's tiring. Like thinking about, all right, what apartment am I going to live in, you know, five months from now or whatever it is kind of, it's, it's an extra thing to think about. So I totally, totally even like where to get coffee or does this coffee shop have Wi-Fi? Yeah. Very big questions constantly. I also agree that, you know, it's just the way you approach or like think about digital nomadism. Um, for me, that those years weren't, they were kind of a, those were years of personal growth for myself because I was a solo digital nomad. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't do it with anybody else. Um, so there was a lot of growth in different ways personally, but it was extremely difficult to grow um, a business, grow yeah. um, professionally, just because it was so difficult to um, have that mental space to think about those things. So with work, when I was doing it with the freelance, it was basically on cruise control. And that was really all I could manage uh, beyond like the traveling and like the novelty of each new location. There's just a lot of like processing involved. And that experience really taught me a lot about managing mental energy and what would take my you know mental bandwidth away. And now I use that, those lessons to really optimize how I think about where I use those resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So let's shift a little bit and talk about your work with Clout Monster because this is something that I'm very interested in. And before we hit record, I kind of mentioned how I've noticed either the the space is becoming a bit more mature and understands that PR is really valuable and being featured on you know these publications does a really good thing for your your brand and you know uh, people you know like the opportunities that may come your way either that's maturing or the people that I'm around are starting to do that more and I'm not sure which one it is like I could be in a bubble I'm I'm not sure but let's talk about first of all like how did getting featured in these publications help? What are the benefits in like the real benefits in terms of like, how does it affect your personal brand? Maybe your business? Like what are the pros of getting featured in publications like this? And why should people care? Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. So a lot of, a lot of, uh, the, the people you mentioned that you noticed were like getting, um, focusing on PR. Um, do they run businesses? some sort of business, some sort of yeah. maybe freelance. Yeah. Like, especially the one person I'm thinking of, they're doing, I think they're closing in on a million a year. Nice. So PR, uh, there's different types of media and PR is like the more traditional publications like magazines and entrepreneur.com, Forbes, New York times, that sort of stuff. Right. And there's something about, appearing in press in mainstream media that just really elevates the credibility and authority that whatever expertise your business is, it helps you, it helps the person, a new person finding you like, I'll go, ah, okay. I don't, I don't know. There's so many people I can listen to. I don't know who you are yet, but I'm looking for quick heuristics to trust you and know that you're not full of crap basically. Right. And, you know, press and being featured in major media just really just boosts that credibility because press, um, they, they vet people before they're published. There's like a vetting process. There's, you know, gatekeepers. There's just the, all of these hoops people need to go through. And usually when I say hoops, I mean like they had to have some sort of story that the media really wants to write about. So just by virtue of having someone else vet you, like in this case, the media, that just is a form of social proof, right? Kind of like having a five-star Google review or, you know, in those restaurants, there's like Zagat rated stickers or TripAdvisor, like these little signals to the customer or someone new finding you. They're like, oh, okay, this person didn't just pop out of a rock. They've been proven. They have credibility. And that's really the goal of press. Um, there's all sorts of media that help with social proof, but traditional press has that highest sort of um, authority. Yeah. I feel like for a while there, like when I was getting started, everyone's website had that bar that said like featured in Forbes on yeah. Twitter, blah, 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 blah. And when you dug into it, like were they featured or was like some company that they worked on? Like there was like essentially the, the, uh, how do I say this? The bar for what it took to say that you were featured in X magazine was like really, really low. And I, there was just, at some point I became like desensitized to it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't, you know what I mean? Like the, the, this doesn't really mean anything to me. And I feel like maybe recently that has changed or. For you? Like your perception of it, you mean? 
Yes, but I think my perception of it has changed because I've noticed the way people are doing that has changed. Like, I feel like it's a little bit less BS-y when people say the hatred mm. and whatever. Is that just me or do you see from your vantage point that the way online entrepreneurs are interacting with these media publications has matured and changed? Media itself is definitely changing the media, the whole media landscape. I would say it is as far as like entrepreneurs and online business owners and digital nomads like ourselves. Um, we have always been, I won't say everybody, but there are definitely some few, there are few people, a smaller subset of people who would use it, like their media exposures unethically, right? Like mm -hmm. they would kind of fudge gray hat what exactly yeah. happened. Yeah. Like were they actually featured, like you said, or was it something else? And I've definitely seen language that I, I think I came across a website one time where the bar that they, we call it logos, the, the, the logo bar, um, it, it, the, the text that introduced the logos was basically like almost featured in. <laughs> so he was like, it was like he was manifesting <laughs> those media appearances. Soon coming but it was supposed yeah. To, yeah. <laughs> So that's definitely disingenuous. And I always tell anybody thinking about media that one article in the short term isn't going to transform anything or change much. It's really about the long game of media and your reputation overall. So it's really important to kind of keep things ethical and really maintain your integrity and reputation because that's really all you have. Like the media and internet is really, really, really good at digging up the dirt and then exposing any sort of, you know, funny business. And then that's really going to bite you in the butt. It's crazy because I recently heard about a business that does the opposite of what you do in some ways, where if someone has had some sort of news article or whatever it may have been that is like really damaging to their reputation, you can hire agencies now that obviously you can't delete things off the internet. Like they can scrub yeah. as much as they can, especially if it was something where in this specific case I heard about it was someone who was, um, they were taken to court about some sort of like sexual misconduct or something like that, which was proven to be completely false afterwards and that it didn't happen. But like the articles were already out there. And so this, uh, this agency was able to scrub some of it, but what they do is they actually create a bunch of new press for you to bury yeah. that negative press down on, on yeah. the, on the, on the Google uh, search results, which I think is really interesting, but I'm curious, uh, I've heard from, from friends of mine who have like a Twitter following, right? They don't even necessarily have been like featured in a bunch of different publications, but the fact that they have some amount of Twitter following has like helped bring opportunities their way that they wouldn't have expected before. So I was wondering if you can give us a specific concrete example of a client that you've worked with. You don't have to say who it is, but somewhat like, can you give us an example of a concrete opportunity that has come along from being featured in these sort of publications, just so folks listening can understand kind of what the possibilities are if, if they do this type of work? Sure. Um, and, and this can be any client, or are you referring to specifically like someone who has a Twitter following or social media following? No, I mean, anyone that's like, let's say, let's say, like an entrepreneur, a lot of people mm -hmm. who are listening to this are, are very interested in business in some way. Like what is somebody who you've worked with who are in an entrepreneurial space, maybe creative, whatever it may be, uh, what sort of opportunities have come down their way based upon features uh, in publications like this? 
Yeah. I think in general, this, the more visible you are, so that's with social media following, um, the more opportunities there are of people finding you. But let's say you didn't have a following and I've definitely worked with clients who just run a business, you know, um, normally without growing their social media following. So in essence, in, in sort of like the public eye, they're, they're kind of basically nobodies because they just don't have that presence and nobody knows who they are. So I've gotten them published in places like Business Insider, Entrepreneur, Forbes, and it's that, uh, those, basically that's them being proactive and um, initiating getting into the press because they just don't have that following or um, they're just not appearing in the public eye enough. So in those cases, um, they're going to be more proactive and they're going to basically pitch uh, themselves and they have like a good story that fits on these publications and then um, that's what I would do with them and let's say someone did have a big following and it's not necessarily that uh, and I've worked with um, a couple authors who have one has a big following and the other did you work by any case my, with Ramit Seti yes okay. yes I did work with him uh, I worked with him Pretty much after I had started to wind down from my digital nomad days. Okay. So it was like a kind of a pivot into a different stage of my life. I thought I saw that and I wasn't sure if, if uh, I, I assumed, but I didn't want to. Yeah. Well, thanks for clarifying. So I, he, he was the, one of the authors I worked with. Obviously, he's already built in a following. Um, and so press opportunities did come more easily but we also did a combination of pitching too. And because he was already known, um, like those, those media opportunities were more like, not, not easy, but this kind of refers, this refers back to, let me, let me kind of zoom back out. One of the things I've been kind of dancing around in these two, um, these couple examples I've been giving, like some of my clients have zero online presence, social media presence. And then I have someone like Ramit who has a much bigger, like a uh, much bigger visibility in the public. And when it, what it comes down to when it comes to working in the media or working with someone in the media and getting into the media, you have to have some level of clout to um, have editors trust you basically. And when I say clout, this could mean a different, a number of different things. It could mean that you have a business that generates some sort of revenue or is doing something really, really cool in a certain space. Uh, you have followers, um, you have credentials like a PhD or, you know, CPT, which is like a personal trainer. Um, and you have like previous published work or previous pub published articles. So each of these are signals to an editor in the media that you know, again, you're just someone they can trust. It's just on the flip side now that you're trying to prove to the media that you are someone who's proven, who has authority, who has expertise. And then by doing that, you're on the media. And the flip side of that is the customers or customer facing, they they know that you also have proven or you are also proven. So it's it sometimes sounds like, so I would still really, I'm, I'm so very curious to hear if you have a specific example of something cool that has come about to one of your clients based on, on uh, like something like this, a publication, right? Like what sort of, let, let, let's phrase the question this way. 
Can you give us an example of what sort of doors have been opened to some clients of yours through yeah. features like this? Yeah. So, well, let's take let's take Ramit for example, who has been featured in the press often enough the last couple of years, pretty consistently. And so, um, obviously, he has a book. His book came about because he had already a big blog following, and so publishers like that. What book publishers also like is that you appear in the press a lot, and you can appear in the press a lot. So by appearing in press, one of the opportunities that becomes available to you is an opportunity for a book deal, uh, another opportunity. Um, and, and actually, Ramit has a second book coming out next month. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's announced that, so I'm allowed to say. But there's also not, something you else heard that came. first, and you are <laughs> There was also something else that was really, really cool uh, that I can't say, give specifics, and that's coming out next year, but that came about from all of his press as well. And just being this general public figure, because more once you get press, that press begets more press right. and that begets more opportunities. It's, I almost, and, and this is what I'd love to, to hear you also talk about is like, it's a catch 22 in terms that in order to get press, you need to have press, but to get press, you need to have press kind of thing. So how do you, and I'm sorry, I know I, I interrupted you, but how do you start that flywheel? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. And uh, a lot of people find themselves in that situation. Actually, one of my clients, uh, I work, um, he is, he was a situation where he had grown um, a business and a following on YouTube, and he was able to negotiate a book deal just based on the size of his following, his personal following. And he had no press. Um, but he had a book coming out and, you know, obviously with a book launch, you want to get as much buzz about it around it as possible. And so we had to go, we had to come at it from the perspective of, you know, nobody in the press knows who he is. And so we just had to really zero in on a good story from him uh, and pitch that to the right publication. So we ended up getting him on, um, we got him on Forbes, we got him on CNBC the first time, and that turned into a couple other opportunities on CNBC. Actually, this past weekend, um, the CNBC video interview dropped on their YouTube channel. Um, and that's also got him on other podcasts like Smart Passive Income, um, uh, Entrepreneur on Fire. So when someone doesn't have press, obviously the story and the pitching angles become very, very important. But also what you're thinking about is your other clout. Like I, I mentioned this before and I call these clout mar markers and it's basically like your following is a huge clout marker. Um, the things, maybe the companies you've worked with is also a clout marker. People you know is a clout marker. Uh, and so you start kind of pulling from different ways of showing clout to prove that, you know, to the media and whoever else you're pitching that, you know, you're an expert in XYZ, you, you are proven in XYZ, maybe not in media yet, but in other ways you are proven. So do you, when you're just getting started in this way, I, well, I see one of two ways of, of, of making this content, right? For publications. I see some people who write the content themselves and then say that, you know, they've written for been, or been published in whatever. But then I see people who get interviewed 
right? Like a writer does a piece on this person or interviews them or pitches them. Do you like, should people start by like writing content themselves? Should they pitch for an interview? Are those the same? Like how do how, because those are two different pieces of content and I kind of see them being used the same way. Would that be correct? Yeah, no, that's, that's a really great observation on your end. So that's, this is actually a strategy uh, that I use with clients is if they're have, they haven't been published yet. So with my book client, uh, the one who had no media, but had a book coming out, um, the first way into the media was to publish his own article because there, there are a lot of publications like say business insider, entrepreneur Forbes, they're, they're definitely more like content farms to, to put for lack of a better word. And they're always looking for content. And the bonus of a first person article is you control, you control the messaging, you control the headline for the most part, you know, it'll go through some editing, but uh, for the most part, you control the messaging. So it's an opportunity to show your thought leadership, your, you know, your perspective and your opinions. Um, and it's also just a way for editors to get content because that's what they're looking for. So it's a win-win um, for both you who writes the article and gets something published and for the editor who gets something good and can publish it. Um, and then this is what happened with my client. Um, we published something on CNBC. This is a first person piece he wrote. Mm -hmm. uh, and I knew what kind of content that they wanted and also what would make it super juicy for the reader. And that ended up trending number one on CNBC for uh, two weeks at least and drove a ton of traffic and interest towards his brand. Um, and from there, we were able to leverage that into additional interview pieces and additional pieces that he didn't have to write. So one that's, that's one effective way to get into the media to basically snowball it into other opportunities. Because... And maybe this is just my point of view, but it's almost like when you compare the two of like a first person versus one that's written about you, the second almost is more valuable, right? Because someone has taken an interest and is interviewing you versus you writing about whatever it is that you want to write about. That is a common perception. And I think it's misplaced. Mm. I think it's just from the vantage of like, oh, you know, I don't have to try and people are going to come find me. Like there's that. I can see that perspective, you know, being important to people. But I think with an interview, you don't know. Ex this, is, this is what I alluded to earlier. You have no idea how they're going to actually use your interview and mm, how they're actually going to position control you. over it. Yeah. Like if you work with a publicist, the publicist can make requests and do as much as, as they can to tell the editor, hey, I want to emphasize this, X, Y, Z whatever the case, but you really don't have control. Um, but also with interview pieces that uh, other publications will only interview people and write pieces about them. You like, you can't contribute first person pieces. So I say there's value in both um, ways. Again, one is thought like original thought leadership from you. And the other is, an interview from someone else who's kind of trying to understand what it is you do and write a bigger story that's not necessarily about you. I wanted to take a quick break and tell you about our sponsor for today's episode, Safety Wing. 
As a longtime digital nomad and remote worker, I can tell you from experience that travel medical insurance is extremely important. The more time you spend abroad, the more you increase your chances that eventually something will happen. Maybe you will get sick and need to see a doctor, or you're going to crash your scooter in Bali and have to get a cast. Either way, figuring out how to pay for that procedure in a foreign country is not what you're going to want to deal with at that moment. And that's why I love SafetyWing. Their services are designed for people like you and me. Their Nomad Insurance is a global travel medical insurance with emergency coverage across 185 countries. Their remote health package, on the other hand, provides remote companies and employees with global health insurance. Not to mention that SafetyWing is also funding the Plumia Project, which is working to establish the first ever country on the internet. So if you're still nomading unprotected, what are you doing? Head over to safetywing.com and find the insurance package that's right for you. And also, consider using the affiliate link in the show notes, which will directly support me in continuing to produce this podcast. So thanks again to SafetyWing for sponsoring us. And now back to the episode. You've mentioned a few times the story angle, right? Like what is the story that you present? And I and I completely understand why that's important, but I think that that's something that is hard for people to do about themselves, right? Like it's yeah. hard for you to come up with the story angle, the story strategy for yourself. Do you have any sort of tips or strategies on how people can look in the mirror, so to say, and and create that story that's juicy that they can then pitch. Totally on the on the ball with that one. Like everyone, it's so difficult for everyone to like, you know, take their own advice and give themselves advice or figure out what their passion or story is. And it's right under their nose the entire time. Like these stories are like already inside you. So one of the one of the frameworks that I offer that's um, and everyone has this, everyone can think of this, is um, something called the war story framework. And it's basically talking about a challenge um, that you've overcome. And so you think about an, uh, a challenge that you overcame recently. What was unique about it? And how did you overcome it? So you kind of just think about that because what's going to happen is that your challenge, whatever you overcame, was unique to you, but at its core, I think it's relatable to, to, to a lot of people at some point, at some point. Um, and the lessons you learn, the experiences you go through are unique to you, but again, offers some sort of universal appeal to people because they can understand, like, especially if they're going through the same thing or they can um, relate, that's really powerful for those people to hear. So sharing a challenge, a struggle, and exactly how you overcame it um, is always a really great starting point to just have like pull a story out of yourself. And a lot of stories have been published like that. Mm. So do you then like suggest that clients kind of go through that exercise a bunch of different times to, in order to then pull out the stories that create like a more cohesive brand message slash niche sort of thing? Or do you just kind of like, because obviously, like, let's say you have a business about X, and you're coming up with your your stories. Obviously, some of those stories and challenges don't necessarily connect in any way with the business, right? So do you try to sort of like funnel those into something that would relate to whatever it is they want to promote? You know, I would, uh, I would challenge you on on that assumption. The, the thing is with 
a lot of these businesses and founders is a lot of these businesses that they founded and the things that they've done that they want to talk about and promote have come from challenges like um, the success of most businesses or the start of most businesses have come from some sort of like really pivotal moment, some sort of transition in their lives. I would say at least 90% of stories come from that. And the media loves founder stories. They rather, they care less about the company itself and the mission values or whatever they do. They would, they care more about the story of how it was founded. And that usually comes from some sort of struggle or problem or pain point. Um, and so this is why the war story framework is so powerful because it reaches into so many different parts of the founder and the business. There are a lot of um, publications, like I know the entrepreneur.com podcast, Jason Pfeiffer, the editor in chief really loves any sort of story and, and um, idea from a founder of like, what was something that they struggled with and they overcame um, and of course, you have to put like a really interesting spin on it or it has to be a pretty unique perspective, unique uh, challenge and, and, and solution because after a while, you kind of see the same patterns, but that's kind of more nitty gritty. But the takeaway to zoom out a bit, like just starting from a point of like overcoming a challenge, like an underdog story, which is very Western, um, like a it's like a Western value, I think, to to have this underdog thing, this underdog theme of overcoming great challenges is like people eat that up. Yeah, for sure. What is something that you've seen a lot of people do to try to get featured in, in publications like this that don't work and that you think needs to be skipped? Yeah. Hmm. One of the big mistakes I see a lot is, you know, let's assume this person uh, has never been published before and they get this idea of wanting to be in the media and their dream publication, the, the publication that they're aiming for is a big one like Wall Street Journal, Journal or New York Times. And so they do like a Hail Mary pass at coming up with a story and they pitch someone at New York Times and then they don't hear anything back and then they get really dejected about that and they give up and they say, this stuff, this stuff doesn't work <laughs> or like, I'm not ready or like, I'm not good enough. Like these kind of negative thoughts come about. So I think that hail Mary pass of expecting to go from zero to like New York times is that equivalent of an unrealistic expectation of like building a million dollar business in like a month. Right. It takes a little, it takes some time, it takes some strategy, and it takes basically more credibility and clout. So kind of goes back to if, you st if, you're, if you've never been published before, how do you prove yourself to, the, to an editor that you are an expert in what you say you are, that you are this person? Because for the editor, they're thinking about what's at stake. If I feature this person, what's... What if this person turns out to be lying or um, what if this person is actually going to be a lot of work because they're not, they don't, uh, like, let's just say you're contributing a first person piece. Let's just say the writing takes a lot of editing and the editor doesn't want to deal with that. So the more proven you are, just the more likely um, you can get featured in uh, more and more media. And so 
I encourage anyone who's just starting out and looking at getting published in the media to, you know, make sure first that they have a lot of um, published work. And it could start on their own blog. Then it can move on to Medium, something like Quora, just a place where you're you're kind of fleshing out your ideas. And from there, get into an industry blog or a niche publication, like say you're in fitness, get into bodybuilding.com. And so by the, by the time you pitch like a more mainstream, bigger publication in that industry or in that specific topic like fitness, you're already proven because you've been published in a blog, you've been published in Medium, you've been published in bodybuilding.com. So each place you're published is more clout, more proven um, credibility. And so I call this just this strategic, like step-by-step um, getting from one place to the other in an incremental fashion, the slingshot method. So you're going from not like zero to New York Times, but you're actually having steps in between to keep proving yourself and your your credibility. And I I love that because it makes sense, right? Like if I put myself in the shoes of of a, of a publisher, like I want someone who is as risk free as possible, right? Like I I know this person. Yeah knows what they're talking about. They've been published before. Someone else has vetted them. I should do my own vetting. But like yes. for the most part, they're easy. I know they can write well. Hopefully not, they're not going to be a pain in the ass to work with, right? So I, exactly. I totally like that. But one question that I have, and I'm curious about this from your point of view is about, I've heard this from people before where they say, well, I don't want to use my best content on a website that maybe doesn't get so much traffic. Like I want to save that for the New York times or whatever it may be, right? Like they don't want to give the best out and they don't want to like get their, like get their ideas that they feel like are really valuable published on places that maybe not a lot of people would see them. What I've noticed is that people tend to reuse that, right? So just because you talked about this on this publication doesn't mean that you can't talk about it on CNBC or whatever it may be. Do you actually think that that can be a benefit where those bigger publications can see that you've talked about it, maybe reuse the same content? Like, do you see that as a problem or not? I don't see, there's two two things about what you said that um, I don't necessarily um, agree with that, that point of view that you should not put your best stuff out mm-hmm. there. I think you should put your best stuff out there, especially if your goal is to grow your following. You want to capture the people on other platforms uh, and bring and then impress them there and bring them back to your site then. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is it's totally possible to write about the same thing over Mm -hmm. and over again and publish it on different places just not exactly like copied and paste, but just a slight change. I did this myself when I talked about my digital nomad experiences. I actually spent a couple, uh, like a, a couple months just writing about them. I wrote about exact digital nomad things, uh, like the things we talked about earlier uh, on, on this um, on the show, where you know I, I I wrote first wrote about it on Lifehacker. I first then I wrote about it on Thrillist. Then I wrote about it on Business Insider, and that turned into a news article about me. And then I wrote about it on New York Times, and then someone else interviewed me about the digital nomads. So the more you talk about like the same story, basically, you start to become like that go-to person that they want to future people want to um, interview and refer to. Yeah, I love uh, that. Makes me think about 
Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Dickie Bush before, but he has this really great thing that, and I'm paraphrasing here, this is not exactly how he said it, but it was, you know, something that's sort of like, people think that being creative uh, or like newsworthy or whatever it is, is saying like a thousand different things. And it's really saying the same thing, but finding a thousand different ways to say it. And I was like, nice. I like this. Like, that's like, you know, kind of like finding up, like say the same thing, but find a way to say it over and over and over again, that's different and keeps people interested. Exactly. And the same stories too. Like I think Gary Vaynerchuk does that. Uh, Ramit does that. He says the same, has the same set of stories. And the, the beauty of this is that you get to keep fine-tuning that story and that angle, and you get to see what people resonate with most. And if that's starting to go gangbusters, you double down. Mm. Where do podcasts fit into this? Because as a podcaster, I get tons and tons of pitches to be on this podcast. And some of them are just immediately throwaways. Like, you didn't get my podcast name right. You don't, you know, like I can tell that this is not, like genuine or whatever it is and some some work so how does that fit into your general strategy like when you're working with with clients do podcasts fit into that how do they help general quote-unquote clout building yeah yeah podcast has a pretty specific sort of purpose um podcasting is for anyone on a podcast and you know for your listeners too they're at at the core of everything they're building a relationship with you. It's like they're in the same room on a couch, just chatting or, you know, with you and me chatting, they're kind of just hanging out and listening to us chat. So the powerful thing there is that they get to, they get to have a longer form way to hear your thoughts, your perspectives, your expertise, and kind of build a relationship with you and build that rapport. And that's really powerful if you want to, uh, if you, and this is for mainly for business owners, if you want to, you know, eventually sell a product, um, promote a product. And a lot of my book clients go on podcast tours just because of the long form format of it allows them to talk about the ideas, again, build that relationship. And if the listener really digs the ideas and what they're talking about and what they represent, like they're going to ch check out the book or check out that person. So podcasting is really powerful for the for for um, some follower growth if that's the goal, but also building that relationship and um, basically level of self promotion. So would it be correct to say that people use podcasts more as a way, like a shorter transactional period, versus the media publication features are more for like. Uh, overall personal brand awareness growth and they're not necessarily looking for selling. Yeah. Yeah. PR would mainly be, there is some selling involved with media, but um, those would usually be through affiliate links and that's more like insider baseball. Um, but PR at its core is really about that general awareness, that brand building and that, elevation of credibility um, of your brand. And, you know, as an online business owner in the, in say the course space, that credibility is super important. Gotcha. So it's sort of in, in wrapping everything up. I'm, I'm curious about what sort of tips you have for the listener if they want to get featured in this. Like, I know that we've talked about a whole bunch of different things 
and that there is, you know, you, you've shared a lot of strategies. Like I love the slingshot method, by the way. I'm, I'm very happy that you brought that up because I was going to ask you about it because I read about it on your <laughs> website. But cool. can you just sort of let people know if they're starting from zero, right? Maybe uh, they have something they want to talk about. Maybe they, they've launched a business. They want to get featured on, on some of these publications, but they don't have a huge social media following. You know, they, they haven't really gotten themselves out there yet. What would be like step one, two, three of how to get started? And then what would be some of the first places that you would you would like get them to pitch if they're working with you? Like what would be some of the first places that you think they should go to? Yeah. So I uh, this kind of part of my clout, uh, the slingshot method. Uh, the first thing I would encourage everyone to do is just really continue to write and produce content of some sort. Could even be podcasts. It doesn't even have to be written, but it does have to show that you're like prolific in content and prolific in that area of expertise that you want to eventually be in the media for. So, you know, do just kind of put your reps in for content. And as you're doing the content, find sort of the stories and the kind of the sticky advice that really resonates with people because you're, those are those are the things that will also resonate with the editor in media um, for the most part. So this is kind of like as you're blogging, as you're creating content, this, that, those are your testing grounds to keep refining your ideas that you can then use in media. So that's the first thing I would encourage people to do is just keep producing, keep creating. And the second thing is make it, there's like a saying, I think I'm going to butcher this. It's like, dig, don't dig the well when you're thirsty. Mm, yeah. 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 Like dig so, the well before you're thirsty. Yeah. Dig the well before you're thirsty. <laughs> we're going to have, um, we're going to make a thing for this podcast where, you know how people say we don't do public math. We're going to call it like, we don't recall, uh, you know, like, like quotes in public because we're going to, yeah, I'm just going to butcher every quote. <laughs> But hopefully the general gist comes through. But don't wait until you absolutely need media to start getting media. And so by that I mean, just start reading publications, uh, find like see who the writer is, and follow them on Twitter, and start interacting with them. Because that way, by the time this is this is you building that relationship with that writer or that journalist or that editor, whoever it may be, someone in media. So if you, the more you interact with them, the more your name becomes familiar. So by the time you do have a pitch, you know, and you land in their inbox, they're going to at least recognize your name. And you're not like this completely cold pitch that came out of nowhere, which um, is often the case for a lot of these editors. They just get hundreds of them. So that's another thing. It's pretty low effort, pretty easy, low stakes. And then when they're just really feeling confident, they have like a story um, let's say they're a fitness coach or something. Um, one of the first places I would look at is maybe somewhere like men's health. Make sure that they're taking contributors, contributor, contributor pieces. Um, Business Insider, I've mentioned, is always looking for content. So that's another place to look for content uh, or sorry, to pitch your content. Um but make sure that you read the articles, make sure that you read the publications and make sure that you, whatever you're pitching lines up with what they actually publish. Cause that's, that's, yeah. that's going to be the biggest reason 
uh, any pitch gets rejected. It's just not a good fit. It's kind of like if I were to pitch you and be like, I'm going to talk about health and fitness only, but I'm not a digital nomad. Mm -hmm. You're like, that's not the right fit. Right, right. I understand. I'm curious. uh, I saw a friend of mine use this and I thought that it was actually a good idea where uh, he has an app that has, you know, it's, it's, it has no locality to it, but he had never been featured on anything. So he went after his hometown newspaper and like got Mm. this publication used as, uh, he did that in his like hometown newspaper. Then he did that in the like town that he lives in now as a way of like getting his foot in the door with these publications. And I thought that was really smart because he's leaning on the local aspect and getting that flywheel started maybe in the field that's a little bit easier. Does that, yeah, like, that's... Is that like a good like strategy? Like, is that something that you've seen before? And and how valuable are those? Because I'm always curious, like, in my like local town, like does that hold any weight if I then go to pitch a, a bigger newspaper or, or magazine? I think it can, especially if it's like in a town that has those um, those I, I guess you call them subsid like the affiliates, like you mm-hmm. know ABC as a station yeah. has like their own in each city. Yes. So if you go local, I would try to aim for those. I think a local paper, like an even smaller local paper, can be used as part of the slingshot method. Um, You kind of get from like a smaller local newspaper and then you maybe get into the local news channel, especially if that story is really, really compelling. So sometimes it's not even a matter of like the the tactic itself if you don't get the story right. The story is super important still. What are good? So I know that you talked about, and I'm I I, I want to be respectful of your time, but I'm I I really think it's very important for the story aspect. Is what makes a story compelling? Like I know you talked about the challenges, but do you have any sort of like quick final tips around, uh, uh almost like a like a like a check mark kind of thing, like a like a checklist of make sure that you have that your story has this this and this. Yeah. Do we have another hour? Oh, I mean, we no. could we could we <laughs> could do a saying. second part. Yeah. The story, the story element is is can can have a lot of moving parts, but the quick of it is when it comes to media, they publish a lot of stories, but there are a few consistent themes in a media a media worthy story. So the first one is uh, originality, and when I say originality, it doesn't have to be like something that's never ever been done before, um, not completely original, but something that offers still a new take a new maybe conversation uh, adds to the conversation, a new perspective, you know, something like that. It just has to be original in some way that they can publish and they can, you know, it just takes a searching of that site, searching of that publication to see if they've done something like that. And if they have, like, what are the angles and how can you make yours different? The the second thing is um, make sure that you pitch a story and not a topic. So, Usually a story is fairly specific and draws from something some from from real life. A topic would be something like starting a side hustle. Um, but if you if your story is, you know, I quit my job and I started selling sneakers for two hundred thousand dollars a month, like that's a story, right? And then finally, um, I would say when you think about your story, you want to kind of preemptively answer the editor's question internally. They're going to be like, so what? Like, why, why do I need to publish this now? So 
basically you want to tie that into why it's important. Is it newsy? Is it impactful? And if it's impactful, how impactful? Like a small number of people or a huge number of people? So a couple, it can get kind of like, like I said, there are few moving parts to it, but those are the core things to think about. Well, Steph, uh, like I said, I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. This has been a ton of fun. I've learned a lot. I know the people listening uh, have also learned a lot. Let people know um, where can they find out more about you? And and also, I know that you have a newsletter. Where can they sign up for that? And what sort of things do you publish there? Yeah, uh, you can find me on Twitter lurking these days more so at a super LEE7 uh, Twitter profile. And I'm usually writing a weekly newsletter at Clout Monster. It's, I call it TLDR. Um, and it doesn't stand for too long, didn't read. It's actually just tip, link, discussion, random. And it's it's more condensed version of everything we talked about. So if you want pitching tips, how to get published in the media, headline breakdown, the psychology of pitching and media and all of that stuff, I write this uh, weekly newsletter, TLDR, every Tuesday uh, for now, and you can find it at cloutmonster.com slash um, newsletter. But I want to let you guys know about this um, bonus. Um, if you want to check out a pitch that I had a client send to entrepreneur.com that actually resulted in an article, uh, I show that pitch and I break it down uh, as a bonus for signing up for the newsletter. So you can find that at cloutmonster.com uh, bonus, bonus hyphen pitch. Perfect. Well, I'm going to have uh, sh- links to all of that in the show notes. So uh, folks listening, don't feel like you need to remember that. Just head on over to the show notes and it will be right there. But Steph, thank you so much for coming on again. Uh, this has been super, super fun. And I, I, I'm i actually going to sign up for the newsletter and I look forward to, to reading it. Awesome. Yeah, you asked some great questions and I'm glad you brought them up to like really elaborate. And I think people got some really cool insider tips. So I'm happy to be on. Thank you for the great conversation.